A fabringen, in Yiddish a term meaning a joyous gathering, but it's really so much more. It's insight, it's inspiration, it's the bottom line. Join Rabbi Levi Avtson, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. for the Fabringen, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello everybody and welcome to 101.9 High FM. My name is Rabbi Levi Avtson and we are here today on the Chai FM show, the Fabringen show, every Tuesday from 1 to 2. Unfortunately, last week I couldn't be here. I was doing a funeral for a beloved member. But here we are back live to the studio. And as I was preparing what to talk about today, I'm really getting into the zone. I thought to myself, as this COVID story is getting longer and longer, and it's slowly but surely not anymore an anomaly it's the world the way we know it i mean i think you know we my wife and i had a baby just under six months ago and pretty much this has been all her life no hugging grandma no seeing anybody this has been the life it's become a serious way of life and we've spoken about it before on the show the difference between short-term trauma and long-term trauma i'm not talking about necessarily from a psychological point of view but from a emotional, spiritual worldview that long-term demands from us to start digging deeply into certain things. Like I think in my own life I've been through certain tragedies, but most of them I would call short-term strategy, uh, tragedies. Um, and then you go through the tragedy, it's a once-off, it's a death, it's, a, it's grief, and then you have to unpack it for a long time. But the difference for this time is that we're living through an episode that is just going on and on and on. And for me, the place I dig and I dig deep to find inspiration is within my family's history. And growing up with my family story, um, just to give you some context, I, I, I didn't really appreciate it. I'm not going to say that I really appreciated the history I came from. I took it pretty much as a uh, given that that's just whatever. It's a story. People have a story. It's just the way it is. I didn't necessarily appreciate its value to me. And on both sides of the family, I'm part of a very large family. In each side of the family, both my father's family and my mother's family, there's over a hundred grandchildren. So, and I'm not one of the oldest. So I was like one of the grandchildren. And like, obviously it's a different a topic for a different time, big families, but I didn't necessarily grow up with a strong identity of, of my grandparents. They were much older by the time I was born. My mother is one of the youngest in her family. My father, although not one of the youngest, is still um, born to my grandparents in a relatively older age. And by the time I was born, I didn't really have that relationship. And it's already been years that all my grandparents have passed away. And I only really got to uncover them and my their stories post-death. Now... Both of my grandparents, my grandfathers, left books. One of them only in Hebrew and more just like an ad hoc book. He didn't necessarily like edit it. It's a bit of a difficult read. My father, my father's father, paternal father, maternal grandfather. And then there is the story of my mother's father, my maternal grandfather, who wrote a book that sold quite popular in the early 90s. It was called Deep in the Russian Night. Um, a red book with black, I think it, it with like black picture of like the Kremlin. It's like a bit of a stark painting. And 
eventually it was translated into Hebrew and added more details. But what I want to do with you today is, although it's a long book and you didn't come here to hear audiobooks, I, I truly believe that if you could listen to some of these stories, you'll find some very meaningful inspiration just in his story. Again, I'm not going to focus on specific elements of, in other words, it's not one story, it's his life. Just to understand what it meant for this individual and my grandmother, who he meets later on in life, to live through a long-term trauma. That's really what the story is. It's a long-term trauma. So to give you context, and then after the break, I'll come back to um, start reading the book. I'll give you context. Um, from all sides of my family, I'm, I come from Ukraine and Russia. Now, until 1917, 1918, Russia was a place that Jews struggled desperately with poverty and struggled desperately with pogroms. But at the same time, they also flourished. Jewish life was flourishing in Russia. Despite mass immigration, millions who went over to the United States in the late 1800s, early 1900s, etc., there was still a flourishing Jewish community in what today we call the former Soviet Union. This is before the Soviet Union. Now, my grandfather was buried, uh, sorry, was born in the early 1900s while Russia was still not a Soviet state and religion wasn't outlawed. Although Jews were second class citizens, it wasn't outlawed. But in his younger age, what happens is he slowly lives through a world that loses its compass. He's, he's living through a world that loses its way. And within a short amount of time, his world is turned upside down. So when he's young, he's the son of a rabbi, the rabbi of a city in Ukraine or Russia called Krasnostav, which means Red Lake. And tradition has it that the reason why that little town of 200 family, 250 families had that name Red Lake is because in the time of the Cossacks in the, eight, in the 1600s, they rounded up the inhabitants of the town and slaughtered them at the edge of the lake. And the blood of the corpses has turned the lake crimson. That's the story of the, my grandfather's town, and that's why it was called Krasnostav, which means Red Lake. But he was the son of a rabbi. He was named Aaron. I named my firstborn son after him. And growing up, he lived a very high status. He lived the life of a child of a rabbi, the rabbi of the town. And in that religious community, that was the most prestigious family you could come from in the town. And then March 17, the Russian Revolution begins. And eventually the Bolsheviks, which are the Soviets, overthrow the provisional government with lots of bloody fighting, whites against the Reds, etc. Things got really difficult very quickly. For example, one day, and this is my grandfather talking, one day some wild peasants burst into our house and seized my father, my grandfather, and the two shochtim, the slaughterers who were in the house at the time. I watched as they marched them to the wall of the shul across from our house, cocked their rifle to shoot. This is my grandfather as a young kid watching his grandfather and father about to be shot. Fortunately, the rifle jammed and these Petlurniks, which was one group of uh, rebels, 
had to content himself with beating them on the head blow after vicious blow with the rifle butt. Finally, my grandfather and father slumped to the floor unconsciously. Apparently, the peasants thought that they were dead. They dragged, they went to the two shochtim and then dragged the two slaughterers down the streets by their beards. And mercifully, all four recovered. But other Jews in the town were massacred. My grandfather says another time when rumors broke out on Friday that these guys were on the way back to the town. My father grabbed the children and our family and fled. When we returned home, we found two Jews had died. This is what my grandfather lived through at a young age. This is before the Holocaust. This is in 1918, 1919. And I'll continue with this story just after the break. This is 101.9 Chai FM. My name is Rabbi Levi Afsen, and we are here. Today we're singing, um, we're going to play a cappella. But um, because of the three weeks, and the a cappella we're going to play is called Ela, and this is 101.9 Chai FM. This is the Fabringen with Rabbi Levi Afton on 101.9 Chai FM. This is 101.9 Chai FM. My name is Rabbi Levi Afton, and we are on the radio 101.9 of the Fabringen show every Tuesday. And as I shared earlier in the show, what I want to do today and what I'm doing is sharing my grandfather's life, uh, a story that doesn't really get a lot of focus. Um, when we talk about the early 20th century from a Jewish perspective, obviously the Holocaust is an overriding story, but there's a very, there's a lot of other stories, whether it's the depression in the United States, whether it's here in South Africa and the lives our grandparents and great-grandparents built up, and also what people went through in Russia. It's a story, and I'll just give you one example of an anecdote that chances are most of us don't know. There was a two-year battle between Ukrainian separatists and communists about who's going to take over the Ukraine area in the Soviet Union. This is while the Bolsheviks, while the communists are trying to take over. And it's estimated that the conclusion of two years of nationalists battling the communists, who both hated the Jews, over 150,000 Jews had been massacred in pogroms. 150,000 Jews in 1917, 1918, 1990. Tens of thousands of widows and orphans were without homes or resources. And then the communists, under the leadership of Lenin, defeated the Ukrainians. Understandably, Jews hailed a victory. They saw it as an end to Ukrainians' atrocities, which were vicious anti-Semites, and they ended up as anti-Semitic, if not worse, during World War II, where they helped the Nazis with their final solution. While it's true that the communists brought a measure of stability, it only served as a platform to promote their ideological atrocities. So, basically, the communists had an ideology, besides the Marxist ideology of equality, etc. They also were anti-religious. They could not tolerate religion. They felt the religious beliefs were a continuing source of hatred, and political dissent against communism. And therefore, to convince the masses, they they told people, religion teaches that some people have to be poor and others rich, that you must accept your suffering. This is nonsense. Religion is the opium of the masses. Now, my grandfather was a religious boy. As I mentioned before the break, he was the son of the rabbi. So this was the life he knew. At the time of the revolution, the vast majority of Jews in Russia were religious. The Jews and socialist reform and Zionist movement accounted for a relatively small percent of the Jewish population. What these individuals lacked in numbers, they made up in zeal. 
And there was a lot of arguing and debates, each one trying to pull the Jews to various different areas. Now, when the communists seized power, seized power, all Jewish organizations, religious and non-religious, were banned. Anyone willing to follow the communist line was appointed to a respected position, regardless of their level of education or anything. The easy life of communist party members contrasted sharply with the widespread struggle to survive. Some Jews decided to join the Communist Party. According to some numbers, 80% of the first communist government under Lenin were Jews. They felt that they could maintain their Jewish identity and still be accepted if they went along with communist ideology. It was this group that formed the nucleus of the infamous Yevtsekzia, an organization whose aim was to indoctrinate the Jews in party ideals. And the saddest part of the Yevtsekzia, which means the Jewish division, that was run by Jews for Jews, but with the sole goal of assimilating all Jews into mainstream communist culture. The communists would probably have been as powerless as the czars to destroy the Jewish faith were it not for the Yevtsekzia, the Jewish group. Before long, there were branches of the Yevtsekzia in every town and village, and they were all headed by Jews. In the villages, they were led by the poorest and lowest workers who the communists have appointed leaders in implementing their economic policies. The poorer they were, the greater the authority they were given. These newly empowered laborers set upon their wealthy neighbors with relish. Once they were convinced of the righteousness of communist equality, these Jews began to cherish other communist doctrines as well, and soon demanded that all vestiges of religious life are banned. This is what my grandfather's story goes. All schools were locked. Hadarim yeshivas were immediately closed. New government schools were opened and staffed by Jews who had previously taught in Jewish labor schools. Now, all these schools were just sharing this communist ideology. And they used, because the language of Jews in Russia at the time was Yiddish, it was all done in Yiddish. They created a new Yiddish language, they changed some of the alphabet, Hebrew words were spelled in this new dehebridized spelling, etc., Initially, parents who did not send their children to these new schools were fined. If they persisted in keeping from the youngsters, they were brought to trial and received a hard punishment. In the end, nearly everyone sent their kids to government schools. In all towns, separate schools for Jewish children, where the new Yiddish language was taught, were opened in order to infuse communism amongst the population. Some religious Jews preferred to send their children to the Gentile schools where Christianity was denigrated rather than Judaism. This is not history of 5,000 years ago. This is history of 100 years ago, literally to the day, 1920 in Russia. And slowly but surely, all vestiges of religion was being wiped out of town. So, for example, a teacher would drill them and say, is there a God? The children would cry, no. The teacher would say, let us all say, God, give us candy. The children would make the request. Well, did anyone get candy? Sweets? No. Now let's say Lenin give us candy, and a bag of candy would be brought in. And children were indoctrinated to hate capitalists, oppressors, and religious people, the clerics, such as rabbis and religious leaders. Anyone who adhered to Judaism was considered an enemy of the people. Parents who wanted their child to pray had to keep him or her inside and close the curtains. Very fam few families would do it. Not many were willing to jeopardize their life. Every so often, the authorities would take one such parent to court and accuse them of some crime in order to frighten the others. Thus, in only three or four years, the intensive campaign of terror 
did away with fully observant Jews. And by the end of the 1930s, virtually in the entire country, in the former Soviet Union, no one kept Shabbos, marriage laws, kashrus, or circumcised their sons. People, especially the young, were afraid to pray. They did not resist the new movement and eventually joined the communists wholeheartedly. I remember one young kipper night, says my grandfather, when the school children came around to the shul to wait for their parents who were praying inside. Not one youngster went in to pray. Worse, some of the teachers joined the waiting children and made a bonfire around which the pupils danced to disturb the worshippers. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. And slowly, my, my, my grandfather writes, in my few years, I had seen life plunge from one extreme to the other. From being a, the rabbi's son and the most respected kid in town, my brother and I, sister and I now were humiliated by everybody. I stayed at home and learned from my father and grandfather, while my former classmates left the religious school one by one. Eventually, nobody wanted to have anything to do with me because I was the only religious kid. I was an oddity to them. In addition to my having no friends and dreading the future, my family was starving because another part of history is that Stalin in the early 30s starved the Ukraine into submission and over 6 million people, many of them Jews, died from starvation in the early 30s um, from these laws. Now, my grandfather is forced to work and he, can, he my grandfather was a very principled person. I met him in his later years. Um, and he would never work on a Shabbos. It was not even negotiable. And he would never, ever take a job who um, that made him work on Shabbos. So the only thing he gets to do is become a bricklayer. All schools are closed down. Yeshivas in Moscow, Leningrad, Kiev are all shut down. Story goes, my grandfather writes, that he used to study with a group of kids some Judaism. There was a certain teacher, his name was Ramordechai Eliezer, who was a Chabadnik who opened a, a small yeshiva in Zvil, in a town next to where my grandfather lived. One day, a well-known Yevsektia, a Jew named Krupnik, entered the, the synagogue, and a policeman was now standing on the door, and he found a bunch of kids, a few kids who were studying Talmud, and they literally started berating them. And um, at, at some stage, the teacher who usually took them, whose name was Rabbi Brook, Rabbi Chaim Shal Brook, walks into the room and uh, the communist finds him. And he orders the rabbi to the police station and they kick him out of town. After that, my grandfather starts learning home more because he's scared to learn outside, inside. Okay. Now, I can t my grandfather managed to study Torah in private till 1929. Then it's, he's about 18, um, and he's being called for the military. And my grandfather makes up a story that he's much younger than he is. And he manages to postpone the military, not indefinitely, but um, for a long time, but just to see how people were treated. Once my father was having severe pains in his leg and the local medic advised him to go see a doctor in a nearby town. He applied to the town council for a permit to travel. One could not leave town without a permit. He was flatly refused. 
When he pleaded to the secretary to relent, the clerk did not mince words. We are not concerned with the life of clerics and rabbis. Who cares if you die? Lenin also died. My father sat in anguish for many months until the pain subsided because because my grandfather and his parents and his siblings did not agree to become communists. They had D-class status and they were all stigmatized. The only way they could free themselves from the stigmatizing was to mend their ways, which means publicly declaring that they sever all ties with my great-grandfather, who was a rabbi, and my grandfather was not willing to do this. And my grandfather needed to get a job. Finally, manages, as I said earlier, to get bricklayer, which is a back-breaking work. The methods were primitive, the work back-breaking, and the wages pitiful. Since almost no one in town will do such work, they begrudgingly accepted me. My grandfather describes how he now feels and now he appreciates what the Egypt, the Jews went through in Egypt when they toiled with mortar and bricks. I could have not borne this pain if not for my convictions outweighing any other consideration. How can I describe my mental and physical anguish at this time? During my entire life, it had been ingrained in me that I was the son of rabbis and here to distinguish lineage. I had thrown myself into Talmud. The only labor I'd ever done was the study of Torah. Now, instead of learning, I was performing hard physical labor just to get bread and avoid being deported. I was a popular topic at the weekly town council meetings where attempts to do away with me were frequently discussed. Every so often, a friend would tell tell me how he had supported me at such a meeting, claiming that since I wasn't doing anything illegal, I was just being religious, but I wasn't teaching anybody else, I should be left alone. Every Shabbos, there was an assembly at which the communists vented their anger at us. What should be done with such criminals who keep the Sabbath? Our fear was inexpressible. Should we give in or should we stand firm? We decided to stand firm. People would wave their fingers at us. You're crazy. Why do you want to destroy your lives? What good is it to stay religious? You'll be brickmakers your whole life, the lowest of the low, and in the end you'll be forced to work on Shabbat anyway. So what will you have gained? Wouldn't it be better to enter some university and learn a respectable profession like all those other children of rabbis? Too bad for you. What a shame. We had no answer to their words. It seemed based on reality. Once a friend of mine with whom I had learned as a child, said, look around. You see that no one is religious anymore, especially people your age. Do you think they'll let, you, they'll let one religious Jew stay in this country? They'll take revenge on you. Can't you see how everyone else is trying to get themselves a good job? Everyone's accomplishing besides you. And listen to this conversation he has with his friend. His friend turns to him and says, people sacrifice... The, no, my, my grandfather says... People sacrifice their lives for communism. Shouldn't I give my life for Judaism? His friend says to him, at least they'll go down in history. And my grandfather turns to him and says, well then, I'll also go down in history as the last religious Jew in Russia. But then I added, I'm sure that with God's help there will still be religious Jews, thousands upon thousands, who will keep Torah. After all, this is the way of the Jewish nation. I'll continue after the break, but let me just give the epilogue to the story. Communism collapsed in 1990, after 70 years. My grandfather, with his 13 children, managed to leave in 1966 and make Aliyah to Israel. 
And today, my grandfather and grandmother have close to a thousand living descendants, every single one of them religious, all around the world. But when my grandfather was laying bricks and feeling deeply, you know, low and uninspired because he had to fight so hard for his religion, he never dreamed this would be the end. But that's what convictions give you. They give you a, a story that at the end is something to be proud of. This is 101.9 Chai FM. This is the Fabringen with Rabbi Levi Avtson on 101.9 Chai FM. So I've been reading um, the story of my grandfather, and it's only a small part. This is a book with 250 pages, and it's not even nearly half of his story. There's so much more of the story that my uncles and aunts, I'm on a WhatsApp group with them, and, and they share constantly sharing more and more episodes of their life. They obviously were born later. They were born in the 50s and 60s in the Soviet Union and what they went through. But uh, I'm describing what my grandfather, who grew up in a religious country, Russia at the time, in the early 1900s, most Jews were religious. And it was, although it was very hard to be a Jew physically, you were allowed to practice your religion pretty much without much um, restraints. And then communism takes over and it becomes illegal. And my grandfather becomes scum of the earth in the eyes of pretty much all of society. He says, sometimes the press would invent a crime committed by religious people. I remember one outrage reported in the Yiddish paper that was a topic of conversation for days. A famous shochet, a slaughterer, was reported to have been caught attacking a woman. But later I found out that the story had nothing to do. Didn't you realize this whole thing was made up, My, people told me later on? He happened to be traveling to a town in the region, and when he got off the train, he asked someone for directions. A woman heard him and um, made believe as if she was talking to him, and then she started screaming, help me, help me, he's attacking me. And that was the end. Sent it to jail for five years. This period of my life comes back to me in a haze of overwhelming loneliness, my grandfather says. I was a young man, and the constant unbearable fear took away my any appetite I had for the future. I just hoped each day to make it through to the next. There were days when I prayed not to wake up the next morning. Better death, I thought, than to fall into their hands. There was no one my family could turn to for encouragement. I did not believe that I would ever get to live as a Torah observant Jew. For nine years after the Soviets took over, they gave a grace period, and then they started taking away private ownership. All factories went to the government. Owners were now becoming managers. Well, uh, wealthy people lost all their money. It was a massive, a massive um, uh, destruction. And I said earlier, the lots of people were um, starved to death during this time. Famine falls over the land. Fruits and vegetables could be bought at high prices. The streets were full with people swollen from hunger. Bread could not be obtained except in the main city, Kiev or Kharkov. This is all pre the Holocaust. You have to understand that all these towns, many of these towns, including my grandfather's town, then went through the Holocaust, which was like a, a, a hell after all the hell they've been through. And my grandfather, although he was spirit, his, grand, his parents and his siblings were all shot by the Nazis. And then that was after being persecuted for 20 years by the Ukrainians and the Russians. So for these people, unlike, let's say, Jews who lived in, West, um, in the west of Europe, 
and had suffered tremendously during the Holocaust, but till then had a relatively normal life. For these Jews living in Eastern Europe, living in the Soviet Union, it was just 20 years of hell and then death by the Holocaust. Just like unbelievable what these people went through. Um, and people suddenly started getting arrested one after another. We began to hear stories of how men came at night and took people to an unknown destination. Um, anyone that hid any silver or gold from the communists were killed. There, there, there were councils where each person would tell on somebody else. I remember one man who had been robbed of everything he owned. He turned to a GPU official with the KGB and asked, what else do you want from me? I have nothing left. And the official answers, we want to suck the blood of your veins. It was all, in general, like when I hear people talking about, like whether it's in America or here in South Africa, how they want to bring left-wing politics like communism back. And having grown up with a family where communism was a story I heard from the youngest age, like, what are you people thinking? Go read this book. Go read any book about communists and, you know, government welfare states and see what it does and then convince me that there's remotely logic to this thing. It's absurd, absurd beyond. Um, I remember how they came to a Jew's house one night to take him to prison. They found a visitor in his home, his brother from America. The visitor begged for men to leave him and let him enjoy his brother's company until he departed from America. They agreed and left. When the visiting brother returned to America, the men showed up again and kept the Jew in prison until they received a dollar ransom. That winter, millions of people died. We were starving, says my grandfather. The only reason that the Yevsetsis left us alone didn't arrest us is because they thought we were going to die from hunger anyway. It was a terrifying time. People were killed en masse during the 30s in the Soviet Union. My sister gets engaged. It was a bittersweet time. She found a courageous husband who was devoted to Torah. Eventually, both of them would be killed by the Nazis. The wedding was held in early summer around Shavuot in June, May. And they went to live in Moscow. It would be easier to escape the scrutiny of the authorities in big cities rather than in small cities. My father had to run away because they threatened to arrest him and kill him. A number of times, officials would walk over to my brother and I and say, we're leaving you alone now, even though you don't go along with our ideology, because we know that you don't do anything illegal. But don't breathe too easy. We'll catch up with you one day. I could go on and on and on and on and on. Of just describing the torment just for being an observant Jew was in Russia in the 20s and 30s. Every shul is closed. There's nowhere to go. Nobody goes to, no observance is being kept. Shabbos is a crime. And my grandfather describes how one time he went to visit a relative of his which was religious and he sees that on Shabbos morning the kid's going to school and my grandfather says, why? He says, listen, I can't fight anymore. It's a lost cause. And my grandfather is devastated because then he can't eat from the food in the house because he doesn't trust them. But like, that's my grandfather. You might call him a radical. I'm very proud of his radicalism. That um, he never broke a Shabbos from for 46 years of communism, from 1920 to 1966, when he finally emigrated to Israel, my grandfather and his 13 children, eventually, and my grandmother, never broke a Shabbos. 
Now, you might say they're saying these are people that lived at once upon a time. My aunt, one of his daughters, who was forced to go to school and never broke Shabbat, she's alive. She's living in Jerusalem now, as we speak, in Ramat Polin, in a small little area near Ramat. It's a real people. And they suffered 45 years of absolute anguish just to be who they are. And the reason I'm sharing these stories is not because I believe in dark history, even though, yes, we're in the three weeks and we mourn all the tragedies. No. For me, I'm reading the story to remind myself that even in long-term pain, you could still hold on to courage and still be principled and walk out stronger on the other side. To take inspiration from people who lived through times much harder than us over an extended amount of time and nevertheless came out strong, stronger than ever. During this time of the three weeks, as we mourn the destruction of the temple and other things, Besides going back and reviewing the tragedies that we've been through as a nation, more than that, review our tenacity during those trials. Look at the strength that we have in our bones. And remember that we can go through anything and we'll be okay. And in this time, I find that deeply inspiring. This is 101.9 Chai FM. This is the Fabringen with Rabbi Levi Avtson on 101.9 High FM. So my my grandfather suffered for many, many years. Finally, in the mid-30s, he decides to take a vacation. Where is his vacation? He's going to go to a town called Berdichev. And there's a great sage that's buried over there. His name is Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev. And he goes and he uh, prays there. And he goes to the small little shul. There's nothing much going on over there. And... A person walks over to him, his name is Rabbi Shalom Friedman, and invites him to invites my grandfather to his home. I, I had to catch the train, my grandfather says. They insisted I come. After, you know, after a moment, I go to his house. He says, listen, there was a certain Jew that you know, his name was Yosef Kozlik, who was a religious Jew, who stayed with me when he stopped by this town. And he recommended you as a learned, God-fearing Jew. I have a sister of marriageable age who I'd like to suggest for you. My grandfather then gets to meet the Friedman family from Odessa, which um, my, this Rav Shalom, his future brother-in-law, was the second son of the uh, rabbi in Odessa named Rav Zusha. His grave is still there in Odessa. He died before World War II. And I went to Odessa, and I meet over there Leah. That's my grandmother. She's 18 years old and with incredible qualities, and absolutely devout and religious. A match is more difficult to arrange than the splitting of the Red Sea, the Talmud states. In the vast territory that comprised Russia, there were literally only a few dozen Jewish families where the children believed in God. It was almost impossible to find a woman of marriageable age who was committed religious Jew, and who was willing to undertake the dangers and hardships. No Shabbos observer would ever have normal work or reliable income. And yet... My grandmother decides to get to, to marry. I want to finish off today's show with an episode that happens during this engagement. Because my grandfather, my great grandfather, that means my father, grandfather's father-in-law, or my grandmother's father, Rav Zusha, dies before the wedding. And he has an incredible, incredible, um, passion for his family 
and he he sits down and, and listen to the story. My oldest brother-in-law, Rabbi Avram, possessed a tremendous fear of God, and the whole family was. Shortly after I arrived in Odessa to meet my my bride, I remember a visit Rabbi Avram made to his father who was sick in bed. The son began relating all the sufferings on account of not sending his children to the government schools. His father, that's my great-grandfather, raises himself up and embraces him, and in a voice shaking with emotion, he said, I and my sons will let ourselves be killed before we give over one child to the Soviet schools. That scene has etched indelibly in my heart, says my grandfather. And a week after engagement, my father-in-law passed away. Just understand the devoutness of people, the incredible courage people have. And it's during this time that I encourage each and every one of us to dig deep. We all have incredible stories in our past, some known, some unknown. And to remember that within our DNA, we have the tenacity and we have the courage to fight strong. We will come out of this. Regardless of how challenging the situation is for many, we'll come out. And as we mourn in the three weeks, we also reflect on the bravery and courage of people. I hope that the little story I share today, it's literally one, one hundredth of the book, of my grandfather's book, just some of those stories and the challenges people went through just two generations ago. Inspire me, inspire you to stand up tall and proud and to remember it will all be okay. This is 101.9 Chai FM. My name is Rabbi Levi Yatsen signing off. Have a great day.